Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message was given at the Church of Ellerslie in lovely Windsor, Colorado. This message is certain to convict, inspire, and invigorate your pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also want you to know that should you ever have any questions or comments regarding any of the ministries here at Ellerslie, we're always happy to provide answers. Simply contact us at www.ellerslie.com. We really would love to hear from you. Enjoy the message, and may your faith and love in Jesus grow larger as you listen. Father, we come before the throne of grace, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we make petition and request of you. for the full merit and the full work of the cross of Jesus Christ we made manifest in your church. We as the church of Jesus Christ are not as we ought to be. And you have the solution. The solution is not in our willpower, our grit, and our determination. It is in what only you can impart. And we request the Holy Spirit of you this morning. We request that you would impart to us the unction, the strength, the power, the love to be able to be as we ought to be as the church of Jesus Christ. Lord, may you leverage the weakness that is in my body right now unto a great strength and unto a great glory for your name. May I be a vessel, may this tongue be yours to wield as you see fit this morning. I just declare my love for you before the saints and before the heavenly host is looking on. You are my life, you are my health, you are my strength, you are my salvation. It's in you that I trust. It's in the precious name of our great King Jesus that we pray. Amen. Well, look at this. Uh, The title of this message is The Master Builder, but it's a subtitle that will really get you guys stirred up. A Study in the Working of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're a conservative pastor these days. You need to be very, very watchful uh, of mentioning the Holy Spirit. It's not that you can't mention it in the Trinity. You just have to be very watchful because you could very quickly be categorized as one of the loonies out there. Not a loody, a loony. <laughs> <clears throat> so this particular message, the master builder, that's a very, very important title for where we're going. Basically, if you remember, and I'm going to read the scripture out of Corinthians, it talks about Paul saying that he's a wise master builder. But how was he a wise master builder? By the grace of God that was working in him, he was a wise master builder. Of what? Of the church of Jesus Christ. Of discipling individual souls and corporate bodies. And I would say that for the most part, we have not been wise master builders in the church of Jesus Christ. And we are holding ourselves up with maybe popsicle sticks of truth, but we're lacking a depth and a clarity of how the Spirit of God constructs the saints, both individually and corporately. So the study and the working of the Holy Spirit, boy, that is a dangerous subtitle. See, I could have hidden that. Instead, I stuck it right in the title. And I want you to know just up front today that I am going to unabashedly speak about the Holy Spirit, and I'm not going to make excuses for it. There was a whole season of my life. I remember I I traveled to 
Australia with Leslie. This is quite a few years ago now, and we were doing a tour in Australia. And in Australia, there had been a, what they had called a revival sweep through the church. However, it was a very, very odd revival, one that didn't really match with Scripture. And this is when I was coming down. And so I remember one time I was coming into a church, and they said, Eric, uh, the last, I don't remember what it was. I used to remember the number. It was 19 or 29 people that have spoken from this pulpit. Revival is broken out in the church. But this revival was, you know, everyone laughing and rolling around on the ground, and they were roaring like lions and barking like dogs. It was very odd. And this was all the work of the Holy Spirit. And so what I found myself doing as a young Christian is removing myself from any association with this Holy Spirit. Because if this Holy Spirit is doing this, this chaotic work which doesn't match up with the Scriptures, I really don't want to have anything to do with it. Which is just so funny because the Holy Spirit's the one that wrote the Scriptures in and through men. (laughs) So... It's interesting how the enemy can dupe us and give a counterfeit for something and cause us to retreat. One of the statements that A.W. Tozier says is we have a tendency to back into our belief system. He says this is one of the enemy's greatest tactics against the human soul is to distort to truth and then to cause us to back away from it saying, well, I don't, as long as I'm not like that. And so we end up moving away from truth in the hopes that we're actually finding it. The Holy Spirit is a very significant part of my life and this ministry. However, I understand the pitfalls of dealing with it. I understand the abuses that have been done under his name in this generation. The Holy Spirit is not a force. The Holy Spirit is not merely a power. It is not merely an influence. The Holy Spirit is a person. And this Holy Spirit is not just any person. The Holy Spirit is God. And so when we detach ourselves and retract ourselves from the Holy Spirit, we are retracting ourselves from God's instrument that he has chosen to change us and to draw us unto himself. That's why I'm going to say, without making apologies, I'm going to deal with the Holy Spirit today. Uh, The title, again, The Master Builder. Who builds the saint? Well, it's the Holy Spirit. Who builds the church? Well, it's actually the Holy Spirit. We're going to walk through that. You see, Jesus Christ, the great carpenter, accomplished something on that day 2,000 years ago. And he said, it's expedient. It is beneficial for you that I go to be with the Father so that I may send to you the parakletos. It's the Holy Spirit. It's who he was referring to. The helper, the comforter the intercessor, the rescuer, the one who will actually take from all that I have and bring it to you. So what does the Holy Spirit bring to us? It brings to us everything that Jesus purchased on the cross. The Holy Spirit will not do one thing that is not in perfect alignment with the one we know as the Word of God. Well, let me say it a different way. The Holy Spirit will not do one thing that is not in perfect alignment with the Word of God, not just in person, but in text. You see, the text of Scripture is what the Holy Spirit is bringing to our understanding. The Holy Spirit works within the confines of it. You can say, that's too limiting. The Holy Spirit's the one that wrote it. He took from what was the Word of God's, Jesus, and he brought it and he moved upon men to write these words. The Holy Spirit is not just now stuck with these words going, oh, great. Is that all I have to work with? 
these 66 books. I'd like to do something of my own. The Holy Spirit does nothing of his own. He only does that which Jesus is doing. Jesus did nothing of his own. He only did that which the Father was doing. How do we receive of the Father? By receiving from the Spirit. Because Jesus took from the Father, received from the Father, and the Spirit receives from Jesus. And the Spirit brings only that which glorifies Jesus to us. That which establishes the life of Jesus in us. That which brings glory to Jesus through us. The Holy Spirit is safe. I know it may take some convincing of that, but the Holy Spirit is not some weird thing. The Holy Spirit is God. And the Holy Spirit is no different than Jesus. And Jesus is no different than the Father. Jesus was the full revelation of the Father. The Holy Spirit is the full manifestation, realization, and revelation of Jesus Christ. So if you like Jesus, you're bound to like the Holy Spirit. So, as we begin, I just want you to know that. This is safe territory. I'm not looking to be weird today. I'm looking to be biblical. Because if the Holy Spirit is going to truly utilize this message, I better stay within the confines of what the Holy Spirit would stay within. And that's the Word of God. I was asked, I think it was this week, I think it was Tuesday afternoon, I had a group of advanced students. We get together three times a semester. And one of them asked me a question about, I don't know, it was my experience with the Holy Spirit. One of those awkward questions that you're like, uh-oh. Great. Uh, you'd like to speak in generalities, but not specifics. One of the reasons I, don't, I hesitate to speak in specifics about it is because I don't want my personal testimony to be a template for people. I only want it to be an encouragement. And I know my position, and my position can very easily turn into a template. In other words, like, well, this is what Eric Ludy went through. Well, yeah, but there's a lot of other stories about it. Here, let's make sure our focus is on the Word of God in text and in person and not just on Eric Ludy's story. As long as my story lines up with scripture, let's be encouraged by it. And so I was answering the question. I, I had sort of deviated away from the Holy Spirit. I, was, I wanted truth, but I wanted to go around the Holy Spirit to get it. And I couldn't even say the words Holy Spirit unless it was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in some type of prayer. And that's, that's some serious paranoia right there. So the one that's talking to you very openly about the Holy Spirit understands how challenging of an issue this can be in a conservative Christian's life. I, I had a, a man sit me down once. Uh, it was, I was teaching an advanced communications course. He felt burdened to share something with me, and yet he couldn't find a time in my schedule to sit down with me, so he took my course. That was the reason he was in my advanced communications course, is just so he could somehow find an opportunity to talk with me. And so he wanted to know if he could go out to lunch with me. I go, oh, sure. So we went to a deli, and we were sitting there, and he said, you like A.W. Tozier, don't you? I go, I, I do. Uh, A.W. Tozier had a big impact on my life. He said, you read Pursuit of God, didn't you? I go, yeah, that was the book that changed my life in college. Well, at least one of them. And he pulls out a book, and he says, you are seeing this one? This is the sequel to Pursuit of God. Uh, and it's called... Divine Conquest, which is now oftentimes called God's Pursuit of Man. And I've never heard of that. I thought I read all of Tozier's books. So he said, I just really feel that this is what you're after. See, I was searching for something. I, he, how would he know that? But I was asking God, I said, I see what Scripture says, but I can't live it. God, I esteem it more than maybe anyone in my generation. I am unwilling to bend on this point. This is what you say in your word, and I know you will fulfill it in my life. 
I know it. I am certain of it because you have not commissioned me this direction to just leave me hanging and just laugh and mock me. You will do this in me, but I didn't know how. How is this work done in me? I esteem it. I mean, I was mocked for many years of my Christian life because I would hold to a standard of of what the word of God said, even though my own life couldn't necessarily produce it. And yet I still believed it. I still believe that that's what God wanted. And it was an agony of soul. I mean, there's nothing worse than knowing how you should be living and not being able to live it. So this book, The Divine Conquest, just a little short thing. I was on a plane trip up to Montana to speak at a Bible college. See, that's what's so funny. I was a leader. And yet I was missing something. I was a leader who esteemed the word of God. Do you know that my doctrine has not changed since then? It's that something has changed in me. And as a result, there is a power behind my doctrine. I'm not about just doctrine. I'm about life. Truth that sets people free. Empowers people to live in a way that otherwise they could not live. And so I remember reading this book and it was talking about the Holy Spirit. And I remember thinking, A.W., you're walking on thin ice right now. But if there was one man I would listen to, it would be A.W. Tozier on the matter. And he spoke with a level-headed excellence on it to the point where I could listen, heed it, and not feel weird about it. It was like, that is what the Bible says? Yes, you're right. That is. That is. That's it. That's it. I've been so close to it and yet afraid of it because of how it's been abused that I've actually run to try and find the solution in myself, in my own willpower, when it is found in God. And so I remember we were snowed in up in uh, Montana at this Bible college, and I put on some boots and I trucked over to their library and was looking. I was so moved. There was such a stirring in my soul. I felt like I'd found something. And I remember looking through the the library over there, and it was all these old books. You know that smell of old books? Oh, I love that smell. And there was a book on the shelves that said, Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret. And what's weird is I read that in missionary school years before, but I couldn't remember what his spiritual secret was, but I was confident I knew what it was. I know what it is even before I read this. And even though I can't remember, I know what it is. So I took that book and went back, and I remember reading it and I remember telling Les, I was storing all this up, and I said, Les, you know what we've been praying for? You know what we've been wrestling for? God's shown it to me. And I remember Leslie even saying as I was talking to her, my parents have a book in their basement called They Found the Secret. I'm like, what? And so I, all I wanted to do was get home. Who cares about this Bible college? I just want to get home. And it was about 20 different Christians, D.L. Moody, John Bunyan, uh, Oswald Chambers, Amy Carmichael, Hudson Taylor, Ian Thomas, and they'd all found the same thing, and it had changed their life. Well, there was a line in A.W. Tozier's book that talked about this desire for the Holy Spirit must be all-consuming, because you need to realize he's coming in to make your body his home, and you're giving up over the keys. No longer do you possess your own body, he possesses it, and he will do with it whatever he sees fit. He says, until you're ready, truly, you understand what you're doing, and you're ready to yield up your body, then it'll just be a period of waiting and tearing. And I remember I read this paragraph every day, and I would go into my prayer time saying, it started out by me saying, God, I want this, but I don't want this. That's how my first prayer was. It's like, God, what's wrong with me? 
Why is it that I want you to come in and have my life holy and fully? Everything that this is is everything I've been yearning for, but it scares me because I don't know who you are. The Holy Spirit, I mean, who is that really? Have you seen some of the things that have been done in the name of the Holy Spirit in this world? I'm not exactly sure if I want it being done in me. Or do I? Do I trust this God? That he is the God of the Bible, that he is the God who created the heavens and the earth, and if he takes over my life, he will take it over the way God intends a man's body to be taken over, and he will bring glory to his name in and through it. And so it was quite a few months, I don't want to say years, but it was, it was a long period of time. Every day I would pray, and I would ask God very specifically, I need what you purchased on the cross for me to have. Not just the forgiveness, not just the clothing and righteousness, not just access unto the Father, not just an adoption as, as a son or a daughter of the King. I need the impartation of grace unto my life. I need power. I need love. I need the, the stuff of heaven planted inside of me. And as I was saying to the guys on Tuesday, I, I don't know how to articulate this, but there was one day where I rose up and I've never been the same. And the reason I don't always share that story is because I don't want you to always just wait for a day. I want you to walk in what you have now, knowing that it is the deposit of the Spirit. If you're seeing truth at all, you have something. You have the Spirit. However, there is more, and that's what this message is. When we talk about the master builder, this builder, known as Jesus Christ, does his building in us through the Spirit. He sends the Spirit as his contractor to go and do that which he purchased at the cross to accomplish in us. It's like the lumber of the cross is leveraged to construct this life known as the believer. So, let's begin. 1 Corinthians 3.10 According to the grace of God which is given unto me, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation. So how did he lay the foundation? According to the grace of God that was given Paul. Paul was given a grace. And by the way, grace is not merely a hug. Grace as unfurled in the scriptures is empowering strength, the ability to accomplish that which commissions us to do. Well, how did Paul accomplish it? How was he a wise master builder? By grace. And he's laid a foundation, and another builds thereon. But let every man take heed how he builds thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon the foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it. Because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved. Yet so as by fire, yet so as by fire, sorry about that. Know you not that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? What a strange statement that is. Here, here Paul is talking about being a master builder. He's building a house known as the church of Jesus Christ. And then he says, don't you realize? Know you not that you are the house of God? And I think some of us could say, uh, no, I don't know that. That we're the house of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? See, if we call it the spirit of God, you know that it sounds a little better than Holy Spirit? The worst sounding one is Holy Ghost. It's like, oh, yeah, that one. I just can't stand that one. <laughs> What's a ghost? A ghost is a life within that doesn't have a body. Okay, that's what it is. The Spirit of God needs a body. It is a spirit. And so the Spirit of God can only do work on this earth in and through a body. The Spirit of God did work in and through the body of Christ 2,000 years ago. 
The Spirit of God does work in and through our body, which is known as the body of Christ, 2,000 years later. Know you not that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. The temple of God has a history. It's called the sanctuary. It's called the house of God. Isn't it strange that God would live in a house? You know that Solomon built a house for God? And even Solomon himself said, I have no idea why you would want to live here. And it was the most extraordinary construction project possibly ever known to man. And yet still Solomon is like, the universe cannot possibly contain you, let alone this little house. Why would you want to live here? Well, that's a good question. Not just the temple of God in the Old Testament, but you know where he lives today? In this? <laughs> I mean, it, it's almost ridiculous. You've got to be kidding. This? Why would you condescend to live here? Okay, in the process of building the temple, there was a very specific order to things. You know that when a master builder is building, he doesn't bring the chimney out and stick it on the plot of ground? You know that he first digs a hole and lays a foundation? You know that the wise master builder is the Holy Spirit? Jesus Christ, the great carpenter, has an agenda in this earth. And he's sending forth his spirit to accomplish it in us. And the king commanded, so that's speaking of Solomon, commanded and they brought great stones, costly stones, and huge stones to lay the foundation of the house. Did, did you know that the house of God was laid, the foundation for the house of God was made up of actually costly stones, jewels, the most expensive rock was actually in the foundation? Isn't that an extraordinary thought? You know what we put in foundations? The cheapest material imaginable. Of course, we want it to be strong, but it's as cheap as we can make it. We don't want to waste our money just on foundations, do we? You know, no one appreciates a foundation that is until it starts to fall apart. And they're like, oh, I wish I had a good one. You know that God built his temple to last? You know that the way he built it wasn't just like, I think this will last 20 years. That's ah, a good foundation there. I think we could get 40 years out of this. How about forever out of this? When God is laying a foundation in your life, I don't want you to spurn the season of foundation laying in your soul. Because God will take the most costly stones and he will stick them into the foundation. You could say, this is taking forever, God. You know that they actually hewed the stones far away from the temple site and brought them there. There was not the sound of a hammer in the formation of the temple. They did it somewhere far away and then brought it. This is so much work that they did in order to build this house. You know that God, the same God that orchestrated the building of that temple is the same one that's building you? You know that he will not waste a moment in your life? He will take the most costly jewels and stick them in your foundation. So don't spurn the foundation. The foundation is everything. And one of the things I would say very quickly about here at Ellerslie, we are not the full manifestation of what God intends to do in and through the church. However, there's a foundation that's being laid here. And it's precious. It has some costly jewels in it. And many of us that are here know this. We're like, this is something special. However, we can easily begin to say, but this isn't all. Well, that's exactly right. That isn't to get mad at what's going on here. It's to recognize that we are being constructed. <clears throat> what does the Spirit bring us? 
This is a very quick list. Now, there's more than this, but this is literally a list that is just brought out where it says spirit of truth, the spirit of love, the spirit of a sound mind, the spirit of grace. And I have this little short list for us. The spirit brings us revelation in the knowledge of him. You want to get to know Jesus Christ? Well, get to know the spirit of God. The spirit of God brings us revelation in the knowledge of Christ. It brings us truth. He's called the spirit of truth. He's called the spirit of holiness. He brings us holiness. In fact, he makes us holy. He brings us grace. You want to know where to get grace from? Well, you need it from the spirit of God. He brings us the fear of the Lord. He brings us power. He brings us love. He brings us a sound mind. He's the one that manifests the glory of Christ Jesus in and through us. He brings us life. He brings us wisdom. He brings us understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, judgment, burning, Adoption, meekness, prophecy, supplication. Even the way we pray as Christians is from the Spirit of God. How did Jesus function? He only did that which his Father was doing, only spoke that which his Father was speaking. How about us as Christians? We do that which Jesus is doing, and we speak that which Jesus is speaking. How? His Spirit. His Spirit gives it to us so that we know what to speak. We even know what to pray. We know who to go to and love and to share the gospel with. The initial work of grace. If any of you have even been awakened to the point where you recognize God is who he is, that you recognize Jesus Christ as the Son of God, that you recognize his work on that cross is for you. If you're seeing any of these things, you know who's been working on you? The wise master builder. Yeah, he has some serious work still to do, but guess what? He's been turning over some soil, some rock inside of you. He's been doing some bulldozing. You see, grace has been working on you. We can call this the initial work of grace. God is at work and at large in your soul to begin to awaken you to the realities of who he is. Matthew 16, we see this in the life of Simon Peter. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, who do men say that I am? Say that I, the son of man, am. So they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. How did Peter know that Jesus was the Son of God? It was revealed to him by God. You see, for you to even know, for you to be able to even esteem in your soul that Jesus is who he says he is, is a work of grace. However, was Peter a finished product? Oh, no. Some of the worst things in Peter's life are about to unfold. However, he sees it. This is where a lot of us are, and this is where a lot of us pitch our tent, too. Like, no, I I see it, and I I prayed a prayer. Oh, yeah, he's the son of God. The denial. Sound familiar? You will deny me three times before the cock crows, Peter. What? No, I won't. You see, Peter wasn't all that he needed to become. It's like calling a hole in the ground a house. No, I'm ready to lay a foundation in there. And you know, it's a good work. Everything that's happened so far, the only way you got that hole in the ground, Peter, is from God. However, it's not finished. It's not a done deal. Now, Peter sat outside in the courtyard. Jesus is just about to be crucified. Peter is his right-hand guy who has said that he will not deny the Christ. And here we are. Now, Peter sat outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him saying, you also were with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you are saying. 
And when he had gone out of the gateway, another girl saw him and said to those who were there, this fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. But again, he denied with an oath. I do not know the man. And a little later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, surely you also are one of them, for your speech betrays you. Then he began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word of Jesus who had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So he went out and wept bitterly. You have seen something. The Spirit of God has been working upon you. And he is awakening you to your need. However, look at you. That's us. We're not performing as we ought to perform. And there's a frustration in our soul. I can't believe that I could mean so well and do so poorly. I want to live right, but I can't. What's wrong with me? And God will answer that. You ready for me to fix you? I need that body so that I can do what only I can do. What are you going to do with my body? What do you mean by that, God? You see, Peter is he's ready for the work of grace. But he needs to be exposed that he cannot do the work of grace himself. He cannot empower himself. His own diligence, good work, his own discipline and grit and determination will not produce righteousness. And we all need to learn that too. We want to serve God. We believe he's there and we want to do good for him. However, there's nothing good in us. We are faulty at the core. Something is wrong with us. And that story is us. The promise. And being assembled together with them, Jesus commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem. This is all the disciples. But wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, you have heard of me. What's the promise of the Father? You guys know? It's the Holy Spirit. Hey guys, I have a job for you. I need you to take this gospel of the kingdom into all the earth. However, you are not yet ready for it. You can mean well, but you need something to be able to do it. Wait here. Wait here in Jerusalem until you receive it. The infilling. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled all the house where they were sitting, and there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire. And it sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. Holy Spirit, if that makes you feel better. And began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This message is not on tongues. This is talking about what is taking place here. It's the infilling. Where did God go? It wasn't just on the outside of them, patting them on the back saying, you can do it. He's saying, I will do it in you. I need to be in you. Not near you. Not around you. Not influencing you. I need to be in you. The bold confession. The same Peter who denied him three times. Same guy. We're only talking 50 days earlier. 50 days. I don't know how many of you changed your entire life in 50 days. 50 days later, the same guy who denied him three times is filled with the Holy Spirit. And what we see is a very, very, very different behavior. He strolls out before all of Jerusalem. Remember, this is the city. You know what crucifixion even means? You see this criminal? If you follow him, you will receive the same treatment. And as a result, the disciples cowered. 
They weren't yet ready for the cross. But then suddenly they were filled with power. They were filled with the life of God and they went boldly out into the streets of Jerusalem 50 days later to profess that this Jesus, that these Jews had murdered, is in fact the Messiah. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, this is Peter speaking, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, hath shed forth this, which you now see and hear. This is Peter literally saying, what you see in us, Jesus Christ has purchased it, and he is at the right hand of the Father, and he has shed it abroad in our lives. He has dumped it like a mighty river outpoured into us that believe. 3,000 came into the church that day. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled, and they realized that they had been with Jesus. Boldness is one of the hallmarks of what the Spirit of God does. Now, what's interesting is what we have is we have a huge debate in Christianity. Some of the debates that we get hung up on are so utterly ridiculous. One of them is people are like, no, you have all the Holy Spirit the moment you have the Holy Spirit. And people are like, if I believe that means I have the Holy Spirit, therefore I don't know what you're talking about, Eric. I don't need the Holy Spirit. What? Well, that's a ridiculous one to start with. And the second one is, no, there's two. There's a, you have the first blessing, which is you know, conversion, and then you have the second blessing, which is like Pentecost. You know what? Both of those, as far as I'm concerned, are a distraction from how God builds God does not build once here and, you know, dumps a little something on the ground over here and then dumps another little pile over here. He takes the raw materials of your life and continues to increase upon it. God is always increasing, always working. So, yes, we, like Peter, see the Son of God. We discern that cross is for us. And we, like Peter, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But we, like Peter, still need more. You know that Peter didn't stop there? This wasn't the last request made of Peter. So what we have, the cry for greater strength. This is Peter and John have just been scourged, and they're brought back in amongst the the believers, and the believers pray. What are they praying? Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. By stretching out your hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God with boldness. Okay, now, do you remember the previous chapter, Acts 2? Where they were filled with the Holy Spirit? What's going on here then? Is it just two times? We need more. Key point of gospel growth. We do not have all we need. Is the Spirit of God here at Ellerslie? You better believe it. To the point where we tremble in the light of who he is. Conviction of sin is very (laughs) manifest here. We see the righteousness of God and we see our own unrighteousness. One of the number one attributes of the Holy Spirit being present. The Holy Spirit is here, yes. Do we need more? Oh, yeah. And so we're not done doing the asking. God is building us. We have a foundation. Does that mean we stop in our foundation and go, hey, we have a foundation? I have the work of the Spirit in my life. Yeah, you have a foundation. You ready for some walls? Ready for a roof? Ready for some indoor plumbing? We need the whole thing. 
Not part. We need the whole thing. Andrew Murray. Ben saw my notes for this week and sent me over this, uh, this quote. This is great. So Andrew Murray is answering the question, what, what are you supposed to pray? So the Christian says, How, what am I supposed to pray for? I, I know I'm supposed to pray, but what am I supposed to pray? He says, what to pray? For the fuller manifestation of the grace and energy of the blessed spirit of God. In the removal of all that is contrary to God's revealed will. So that we grieve not the Holy Spirit but that he may work in mightier power in the church for the exaltation of Christ and the blessing of souls. God has one promise to and through his exalted son. Our Lord has one gift to his church. The church has one need. All prayer unites in the one petition, the power of the Holy Spirit. Make it your one prayer. What is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit takes from everything Jesus has. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not receiving everything Jesus has. We don't want parts of what Jesus did. We don't want just one drop of his blood, one crumb of his body broken. We need the whole thing. And the Holy Spirit will not leave one drop and one crumb behind. He is zealous for the glory of God. He is zealous to exalt the name of Jesus in our midst. He is the bold confessor. You want to know boldness? Get to know the Spirit of God. He is unrestrained. He will give the message of Christ in this generation. What he's looking for is a tongue. He's looking for a body. He's saying, hey, I need some tongues. Why do you think tongues were the first thing touched? It's a symbol of a body overtaken. God grabs a tongue and says, this is mine, and I will confess my glory in and through it. You don't need to get weird about it. It's just how it worked. I didn't put it there, by the way. (laughs) The manner of God revealed. There's a way that God works. And the way that God works, and he reveals himself in Scripture. We oftentimes think think that God would work different than the way it works in Scripture. It's like, well, that's the way he asks me to do things, but he doesn't do it. The way he asks us to do things in Scripture is the way he does them. It's perfect righteousness. It's the way that he is. And he asks us to come into alignment and agreement with the way he is. That's what the word of God is. It's the perfect template of Jesus Christ. So when you read these scriptures, you need to recognize it's not just the way we are commanded to be. It's the way that God is. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. When you are given a small amount of something, When you are given that which is least and you are not faithful with it, you take it with a cavalier attitude and you let it drop down the sink or the drain, you know what? God's not going to give you any more. One of the principles of his kingdom is he entrusts you with a little. It's not the initial work of grace. He has given you something. Now what are you going to do with it? It's a test. Are you going to prove faithful with the little you received? Or are you just going to grumble and complain about it? So how you handle the little is going to define if you get more. Remember who we're dealing with, the master builder. The master builder works according to a pattern. What pattern is that? God's pattern. He's God. And so the way he builds is in perfect concordance with the way God does. Because he is God. Tending to what is least. A lot of us have different dimensions in our life that maybe we don't think are very important. How about that one 
sin that you've been convicted of that is just like, that is so ridiculous. I am not about to ask forgiveness for that. That is so petty. There's no way God is interested in humbling me on that point. Are you so sure? I would say that God proves our souls in how we handle that which is least. And if we are unwilling to tend to that which is smallest in our soul, we are not going to grow. We will have a small soul. We want to do things that are big. Yeah, if I killed someone, yeah, I'd make that right. Well, how about the fact that you lied on that test? How about the fact that you lied on your taxes? How about the fact that you said something that wasn't a whole truth? How about the fact that uh, you were speeding on the way to church? You're like, oh, come on, that's ridiculous. Uh, I know, I'm a little convicted too. (laughs) How do we tend to the small things in our soul? Do we show a negligence to them and say, oh, that doesn't matter? You know who who that is that's working inside of you? It's called the Spirit of God. And so if we are negligent and resisting to the Spirit of God in a small measure, do you think you're going to get any more? No. Principle of heaven. You allow God to deal with you in small ways so that he can begin to grow you in bigger ways. If you are negligent and resisting in the small things in your soul, well, guess what? You're not going to get more. And I'll go through the scriptures that make that clear. Now, how about the second half of this? Look at this. It says, the diligent caretaking of the small, which is what I was just talking about. In other words, you are caretaking for your soul. And if there's something small, I mean, I've had to confess some of the most pathetically ridiculous things. And you even want to say that when you're confessing. This is ridiculous. Instead, say, this isn't ridiculous. Have you guys ever heard the story of, oh, I was in a, a church service and everyone was sharing testimonies of different things that, that had happened that week. And I had a testimony. Oh, Eric, just be quiet next time is what's going through my head. But I had a testimony. And so I get up and I picked up this, this guy uh, in South Denver. His home was in uh, Denver and he was uh, homeless, but he you know, needed me to take him to like his brother's house or something down in the, uh, the projects in Denver. And so I was sharing the gospel with him on the way, way back. You know, it's a good, juicy Christian story. I mean, Christians love this type of stuff. So, oh, good for you, Eric. And at the end, I prayed with him. And I added one little detail. It wasn't that big. I squeezed his hand and he squeezed mine. It just added a better finish to the story. So I got done with it and I sit down and God was sort of like, squeezed hand, huh? (laughs) Well, squeezed hand. God, what? And I had this very clear idea that if I didn't make it right, right then, I was going to, have to track down everyone in that church, and my conscience would not be free until I did. So guess what? The pastor starts moving into his message, like, all right, turn to 2 Corinthians. And I'm like, huh. Ah. <laughs> He's like, yes, sir. Uh, and I stand up, and I'm like, I just, uh, I need to make something clear here. Uh, oh, it was painful. <laughs> Tend to the small things. And God will entrust you with more. Second half of this, the, pains, the diligent and painstaking investment of the little. If you have a little, how are you going to invest it? You may only have a little grace, but what are you doing with it? You know, one of the ways that we could look at this is, I know that God is awakening me in my life to different things that need to be changed. Are you willing to take the grace that you do have and begin to press them in those directions? 
For instance, I need to serve more. I need to turn more outward. Will you willing to take the grace that you have, even though it be little, and spend it on those around you? Instead of saying, well, when God dumps a truckload of it on me, then I'll turn outward. No, that's not how it works. You turn outward with the little bit you have. You've been given one little dose of grace. Spend it. It's like, well, what if I lose it? What if I spend it out here turning outward and then I never get any more? That isn't how it works. You have to trust that as you spend the grace of God, as you invest it, it always has a good return. You see, the principle in Scripture is investment. Now, I know when we think of the parables that are given in Scripture, we think of money. But actually, what they're talking about is grace. They're talking about the deposit of God, the riches and the wealth of God and how we handle it. The wealth that Jesus Christ has given us is the Spirit of God. There is no greater value of anything you will ever receive in your entirety of life than the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God has been given you. And to different people, it seems to be in different measures. Some receive one talent, some receive five, and some ten. It seems a little unjust, doesn't it? But how are you handling the one? You see, if you have one talent of grace... What should you do with it? You should seek a place to invest it in the kingdom of heaven. God, you've given this so that I can give it, so that I can invest it. And guess what will happen? It will multiply. And just as it says in the, in the parables, and the five became five more, and the ten became ten more. But what happened to the guy with one who hid it in a handkerchief, or the, one, the guy that buried it in the ground? He lost it. Okay? In other words, the Spirit of God is a gift, But you must tend to that gift, and you must invest that which God has given you. And what will happen? You will get more. It will increase. The gift of Minas. Luke 19. Now as they heard these things, he, speaking of Jesus, spoke another parable. Because he was near Jerusalem, because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Therefore, he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So who's he talking about? Who's a certain nobleman? That's Jesus. And he's coming to a far kingdom. What does it say? Coming to, because they thought the kingdom would come immediately. Therefore, he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called 10 of his servants, delivered to them 10 minas, and said to them, do business till I come. Do business. It's called the father's business. It's the investment of grace. We actually know what the father's business is. What did Jesus come to do? To seek and save the lost. It's the Father's business. There is a job to be done, and what do you need to be able to do it? Mean us? No. Any more than Jesus is just a nobleman from a far country. It's the King of Kings who has come to this earth to gain a kingdom. And what does he give to his servants? He gives them the wealth of his kingdom so that they can function and do the business that he's assigned to them. He has not left them penniless. He has given them everything they need to perform that which they must perform. Do business till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. And so it was then that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first saying, master, your mina has earned 10 minas. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very little, have authority over 10 cities. You see the kingdom pattern here? Because you were faithful with a little, have authority over 10 cities. How did the man get authority over 10 cities? By being faithful with one mina. How do we get authority over 10 cities? By being faithful with one mina. And the second came saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, you also be over five cities. 
Then another came saying, Master, here is your mina, which I have kept put away in a handkerchief, for I feared you because you are an austere man. You collect what you do not deposit and reap what you do not sow. And he said to him, out of your own mouth, I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him. This is a very interesting part. Listen very closely. Take the mina from him and give it to him who has ten minas. Now, what are we all thinking? Same thing they were thinking. Listen to what the next line is in parentheses. But they said to him, Master, he has ten minas. Why would you give it to him? For I say to you that everyone who has will be given. And from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. But bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. When he said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. If you take what little you have, it may be one mina, and you invest it in the Father's business. And you shrewdly take that gift of grace that you've been given and begin to turn outward. If you recognize that you have a problem with frustration, if you recognize that you have a problem with pride, if you recognize that your tongue is a liability to your spiritual walk, what do you do? You apply the grace right there. And say, God, I repent of this, and I ask that that grace that I have, that I've been given, be applied to these areas of my life in obedience. And guess what? It will be. And God will increase your MENA account because you are proving faithful with that which you've been entrusted. Do you have access to all the MENAs of heaven? Yes, you do. However, how do you receive them? Do you receive them all at once? No. See, this is where we get bogged down. We're saying, what are you saying, Eric? Are you saying that I don't have access? No, you do have access in the blood of Jesus. However, you must prove faithful with the little you have before God is going to entrust the full measure to you. Has any Christian ever received the full measure? I don't know. However, I do know how the kingdom is built. He is a wise master builder. The principle of little to big. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very little, have authority over ten cities. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. Basic principle of the kingdom. If you've been given much, it's required of you that you produce much. Okay, if you've been given 10 minas, boy, that's a high level of responsibility. You need to be about the Father's business with those 10 minas. Otherwise, they will be taken from you. You have been given a deposit. Prove faithful with that deposit. It's not just seeing the Son of Man saying, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. But then it's taking that little bit and saying, God, I, I don't have what I need to be able to stand by you at the cross. I will Retreat, and I will deny you. I need something more inside of me. He says, wait here in Jerusalem. And then in obedience, Peter takes the mina that he does have of grace. And he bends himself in confidence that God has more for him. And he believes in the work of the cross. And he says, I will have the promise of the Spirit. And guess what he has? Now, Peter, Peter's life is extraordinary because he goes from literally being a denier to one who confesses in front of all Jerusalem and then one that even when he's, at, when he's being led to his death, the death of a cross, he was going to be crucified just like Jesus. 
He said, I am unworthy to die as my Lord, and he was crucified upside down. Peter, this man who pre-being filled with the Holy Spirit, denied Christ Jesus, now with the life of Christ within him, actually chooses a more painful death for the glory of his king. What does he have that we don't have? That's what we're talking about. The principle of proving and testing. Now, I didn't come up with this stuff. This is just straight out of the word of God. When God is going to give you more, what does he do? He proves you first. He'll test you. And if you pass the test, he'll entrust you with more. And some of you could say, that's rude. This is God's system. Okay, if you are a father or a mother and you have a child who wants privileges, what do you do? Prove faithful with the privileges I've given you, and then we'll talk about giving you more. There's no way we're going to give privileges to our children prematurely. Do you know that the, the stove in the Ludi house is a perfectly fine thing? It's, it's, a, it's not a sinful, uh, what do you call it, apparatus. I can't think of the, the term for it. It's not sinful. However, my children have not proven the maturity to be able to handle the gas stove. And so when they prove faithful with the little things, I will turn over the gas stove to them and say, no, you can use it now. Okay, however, in my inheritance, that gas stove goes straight to them. If I were to die, they get it. However, right now, they are not yet able to handle it. Have you ever asked yourself if you really are ready to handle the full outpouring of the Spirit of God upon your life? You ever wondered if that would even be a wise maneuver by God? That he would give something that powerful and that sacred to people that have no clue what they're doing? Yeah. God's pretty smart, so don't call him rude. He's the most intelligent being. He knows exactly what he's doing. Some of us think we're pretty good parents. He's even better than we are. He knows how to parent his children. He knows how to build the house. The principle of proving and testing. Listen to this. This is the principle for how you select leadership over the church of Jesus Christ. This is, by the way, how a house is built. This is a true saying. If a man desires the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, and of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not greedy, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that rules well his own house having his children in subjection with all gravity. This is a very interesting principle. You know that it is not appropriate for any man to lead the church of God if his own house is a wreck. You know how you prove that a man will be ready to lead the church of Jesus? Check his home. If his home is disorderly, if his children are not respectful, guess what? Well, don't put him in charge of the church then. He hasn't proven himself at the first measurement. It doesn't mean there's no hope for him. It just means he must first tend to first things. Before you give him second things. Who's writing this? You could say, well, it's Paul. Who inspired Paul? The Holy Spirit. This very Spirit of God, the one who builds us, is the very one that's saying, this is how the church is built. Be very watchful. God is not going to violate his own word in building us. Listen, I made this big just so you wouldn't miss it. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? It's just one of those classic questions, and all of us go, oh, that makes sense. Does it? Does that make sense? Because this is the principle of the kingdom. If we cannot rule our own house well, then how in the world are we going to take care of the house of God? Just good old-fashioned heavenly logic there. 
Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Likewise, must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. Listen to this line. And let these also first be proved. How does God build? You prove, then we'll increase. I'll increase your authority. I'll put you over 10 cities once you prove that you can handle the one mina. But if you can't handle the one mina, well, by golly, I'm not giving you 10 cities. God has made available to us the inheritance of Jesus Christ. Just like my kids, it's a very unastounding notion, have been given the inheritance of Eric and Leslie Ludi. Comparatively, I know it's a very bad comparison, but it's real. They actually have access to all that I have and all that I am. And yet, they don't have full, all of it fully operational in their life because their maturity isn't yet ready to receive it. Okay? But that doesn't mean it's not true that they have it, that they have access to it. But how are they going to grow up unto it? They're going to need to be proven at stage one and pass first grade. And then they'll go to second grade. And then when they pass second grade, they'll move to third grade. And pretty soon they'll graduate unto full maturity and be able to handle the full weight of that inheritance. So let these also first be proved. And then let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderous, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children in their own house as well. For they that have used the office of a deacon well purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. So if we were to translate this into the little child model, what would it be? Well, first, you know, when you're raising a child, the first things you're, you're dealing with are there's some no-nos in the house. You know, have you ever seen light sockets and things like that or power sockets? You know, it's like, no, no. And if a child keeps going back to that, there ends up being discipline. If a child can't prove faithful in the most basic obedience, you're not going to give them access to greater power sources. You're not going to say, yeah, you, you really can't handle a power uh, outlet, so I'm going to give you access to the microwave. Okay? In other words, they prove on small things. A child, as one of the principles of child rearing can go, you give them a blanket and you teach them to stay on a blanket. If they can stay faithful on a blanket, then you can let them be in a room, all by themselves even, potentially. I mean, that's an amazing thought, isn't it? And then as they begin to prove faithful in a room and things aren't just torn apart when you come back in, because uh, the room door might be open at first, and then it could even be closed technically, because they're earning trust. They're showing responsibility with little. Well, then you can do other things. You can give them privileges. You might even start giving them jobs to do. And you might even give them some money for those jobs. And then they have a little piggy bank, and they can choose what to do with that money. You're growing them up. They don't have a lot, they have one mina. However, when they prove faithful with that mina, guess what? As a parent, you're very excited to increase their jurisdictional territory. Believe me, as a parent, I'm very excited for my kids to be doing their laundry, you know, cleaning the house, and taking care of the whole estate. I'd love it. Okay? But there's a certain point where you're thinking, this is going to be counterproductive. If I give little Dubber Doo the job of, you know, doing his laundry right now, we might have some funny pink underwear. The proving of David... You know that David was proven? You know that he was given the Spirit of God? On the hills of Bethlehem, the ram's horn of oil is poured on his head. And yet, where does he go first? He gets a mina. 
he goes back to the sheep? You know how hard that would be? How about you? You have a calling on your life that is bigger than where you're at right now. And yet, are you willing to be faithful with the little that you've been entrusted? David has the trifold shepherd test. Let's call it this. The first part is that he's back with the sheep. The guy has just been anointed king of Israel. And he's back with the sheep. You know how hard that would be? And yet, what does he do? He treats those sheep as if it's his nation. And he watches over those sheep dutifully and well, with great love. He takes care of the little thing well. What is David entrusted with as the story progresses? He's entrusted with much. But what did he have to first prove? Faithful with little. What's the other part of the test? A lion comes. You know what? That's a huge test. Because he could say, oh, I don't even care about these sheep. I'm supposed to be ruling people, not sheep. However, he loves his sheep as if it is his nation, as if it is the highest calling. He doesn't, he doesn't look down his nose upon that where he's at today. He knows what he's called to, but he tends well to his sheep pen now. And when that lion comes, he literally lays down his life if necessary to break the jaw of that lion and bring back his sheep. And then guess what happens? A bear comes strolling in. And David goes after the bear. David is being proven on a lion and a bear. What's he being prepared for? He's being prepared for something much bigger. You see, he strolls into the valley of Elah. The proven man is made ready on the lion and the bear. In the valley of Elah, where Goliath awaited, where he was just dropping off bread and cheese. However, when he strolls into the valley of Elah, guess where he's at? He sees the nation of Israel trembling. Whose nation is that? Whose people are those? Those are his. You see, he was anointed as the king. And so he sees his full calling begin to unfold, but he was proven first. And what does he even say to Saul? Saul's like, how could you stand up against this beast? He says, your servant, David, was proven. Your servant, David, was proven on a lion and a bear. What is the difference between a lion and the bear and this giant? Of course, all of us could go, he's a lot bigger. Same God, though. And if he knows that the same God has protected him in those two things, he's, gonna, he's ready to fight. What prepared David for Goliath? What prepares you for what you're called to? You have to prove faithful with the little. Listen to this ultimate statement. We have... David on the lion, which is impressive, by the way. The bear, Goliath. It says that 10,000 can surround me and I will not fear, says David. Look what it says. So David waxed greater and greater. Wasn't the spirit of God given to him way back in the hills of Bethlehem? How in the world did he get greater and greater? The same way you do. In other words, you prove faithful with little and you walk in it. You invest the grace you have and what happens? There's a greater grace. David became greater and greater. How? Because he kept investing the little he had. And the little he had became more. And then he invested that. And it became even more. Little to big. The proving of a child. So I went through this already. But basically, I am going to prove my child before I entrust my child with responsibility. I'm not just going to leave Hudson at home to take care of my kids unless he can prove faithful with his brothers and sisters, even when mommy and, her, and daddy are around. In fact, I think uh, Leslie said that to Hudson the other day, is that when you can speak always respectful to your brothers and sisters throughout the day, then I will consider leaving you with them. Okay, But if you're going to continually you know, sort of nitpick and 
be a brat. We're not going to have this. And guess what? He's been doing really well. I don't know if Leslie's ready to leave him yet, but that's the point. He's growing up unto this. And that's how it works. There's a proving of a child. Pretty soon, it'll be so obvious that we could leave Hudson with the children. But there's a point where it's not so obvious. There's a point where it's not so obvious either that you are ready to receive the infilling of the Holy Spirit at a greater degree. You haven't yet proven faithful with the little you have. It doesn't mean you're just completely off course and there's no hope. It just means God's saying, in that way that only the Spirit of God can, let's invest this properly. Can you be faithful in what I've given you right now? Instead of just complaining that you don't have more. The selection of a vessel. I was using the mental picture this week. When I get a, a cup out of the cabinet, I have a habit ever since I've been young that I examine it. And I want to see if there's any, like, chunks of anything in there. Yeah. And uh, so some of you may, may identify. There's just, even though it's gone through the dishwasher and those chunks may be sanitized chunks, <laughs> there's something about me that always goes through the inspection process. And I wanted to liken that to the way we are. In other words, before God sticks us under the fountain and fills us, there's like a little inspection. Imagine that you have a, a, a plastic cup or even a ceramic cup, and there's a big crack in it. You know that you're going to pass over on that one, and you're going to pick one that is whole? Otherwise, what are you going to do? You're going to stick your precious, like for me, root beer. I mean, I love root beer. And if I have root beer, I'm not just going to dump it into a container that has a hole in the bottom. Okay, what's going to happen to my root beer? It's going to all flood out, and it's going to be a waste of root beer. And so root beer is precious. <laughs> Some of you don't fully understand. Uh, root beer is good stuff. And so when you're pouring it in, what are you going to do? If there's a crack in the vessel, you're going to find a different vessel. That vessel has to be proven to the one about to pour in before he's going to just dump something of value in. And how much more valuable is what we're talking about today? The Spirit of God, the rivers of God. The trying and testing of faith. Does God lay hands on any man quickly? There's a scripture in 1 Timothy. Again, this is a principle of how God builds the church. Lay hands suddenly on no man, neither be partaker of other men's sins. Keep thyself pure. It's a principle of how we build authority in the church of Jesus Christ. We have a season of watching. We have a season of proving. Before anyone in here is going to move up into an authoritative position in the church, guess what? We will have a season of watching your life, seeing consistency in it, measuring you against the scriptures to see that you really do genuinely have the spirit of grace and you are faithfully Invest in it. That's just what it is, okay? And these things do become obvious to the saints of God that surround you. They do become obvious, okay? So the principle is lay hands on no man suddenly. But you know that God does not lay hands on any man suddenly either? In other words, when he is going to bequeath to them his very life river, he doesn't lay hands on any man suddenly. He proves them first. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor, and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. It's called the trial of your faith. You can declare to God that you believe him, and God's going to watch, and he's going to say, are you going to hold to your position? Do you actually walk in faith? It's called the trial of faith. There will be a fire that will come, and there'll be a very loud voice over here. They'll say, oh, come on. God isn't proving faithful. Look, he's not coming through for you here, and in that moment, you believe. You say, but my God cannot lie. What he says in his word is true, and I believe it. And that's truly the vessel that is fit to house the greater increase 
of God. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely bless and I will bless thee, and multiply and I will multiply thee. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. What did he have to go through before he obtained the promise? He had to patiently endure, go through great difficulty. Are we willing to go through great difficulty to obtain the promise? What's the promise of the Father? It's called the Holy Spirit. Are we willing to be trained with a little herd of sheep, lions and bears, instead of all that public stuff that the world applauds? Everyone loves when you take down giants. Everyone loves it when you're the king. Yeah, that's impressive. But are you willing to be made ready for such a day by living faithfully now in the small things? Knowing this, that the trying of your faith works patience. The heavenly principle of restraint. This is a strange subtitle. When heaven won't give. Isn't that a strange thought? There's a line that says, God gives grace to the humble, uh, but he resists the proud. He resists the proud. If there's pride, if there's arrogance, self-sufficiency, I don't need God. Well, guess what? You're not going to get God then. It's that sim- uh, simple. So let's look at the principle of heavenly, res- heavenly principle of restraint. When heaven won't give. When one takes the little things lightly. If you take the little things lightly, well, you're not going to get the big things. When one trivializes and scoffs the small things of the soul. Oh, that doesn't matter. God wouldn't be interested in that. Don't be so sure. If you are unwilling to allow the Spirit of God to probe you in the smallest areas, then you're not going to be allowed a greater depth of intimacy with Him. When one diminishes the small voice of conviction speaking to the soul, do not give what is holy to the dogs. What is the name of the person we're talking about today? The Holy Spirit? What does Jesus Himself say? Do not give that which is holy to the dogs. Okay, who, who do you think abides by this? How about God? Jesus, the very one telling his disciples to do this. Do not give that which is holy to the dogs. Do you think he gives that which is holy to the dogs? Listen to the rest. Nor cast your pearls before swine. Why? Because they can't tell the difference between a rock and a pearl. They'll snarf it down. They don't understand its value. See, a dog and a swine do not esteem what you are giving them. And as a result, do not give a pearl to a pig. I mean, it's pretty obvious to all of us in here, but do you know who abides by that? God does. He is not giving that which is holy and that which is precious, far more precious, by the way, than pearls, the Holy Spirit, to those who are not yet ready to receive. But he answered and said, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. This is an incredible story about the test of faith. It's a Syrophoenician woman who comes. She has a demon-possessed daughter, and Jesus seems to even be ignoring her. And one of the things he says is, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to little dogs. There is bread that is meant for the children. He says, and it's not good to throw it to little dogs. You know what he's doing in this very scene? He's testing her. He's basically saying, are you a dog? And what does she prove? She proves to be one of the children of faith. She continues to go after him and says, even the dogs can eat the crumbs from the children's table. I believe that you are the only source of life for my child. I refuse to go anywhere else. You have what I need. And he says, woman, great is your faith. And he does for her exactly what she asked. But this is still true. It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. 
Because the little dogs are not who it was made for. There is a gift of grace that God desires to impart. But we must be proven that we are not little dogs and swine before we are going to receive it. He who corrects a scoffer gets shame for himself, and he who rebukes a wicked man only harms himself. What you see in the Proverbs is the wisdom of God. He who corrects a scoffer gets shame for himself, and he who rebukes a wicked man only harms himself. And so there's a point where God will retract, and he will not give. Do not correct a scoffer lest he hate you. Rebuke a wise man, and he will love you. It's a big difference between a wise man and a scoffer in God's eyes. Do not speak in the hearing of a fool, for he will despise the words, the wisdom of your words. First things first. So, if we are going to have a position in the church of Jesus Christ, what must God do in us first? He must prove us in our own life, in our own family. You know, one of the things that I've often said is, for a man or a woman to even be ready for marriage, they must be able to govern their own soul, their own heart and mind. If they can't even govern their own body... How well do you think they're going to do in marriage? No, they're not going to do very well. And then if they can't govern their own marriage, their own family, well, then why in the world are we going to stick them over the church of Jesus Christ? This is God logic. First things first. Let's deal with that which is primary, and then God will correct us and build us stronger. There are many of us in here that have been crying out for more. However, we have not been faithful with the little. So what this message is doing, it's a fresh rebuke to our souls to say, I'm not going to complain about what I have. I'm going to take care of that which I have. I am going to be faithful with the little that I have instead of just complaining about it, that it's little. Praise God, I even have the little. And if you are faithful with that little, I guarantee you, you're going to get more because that's how the kingdom of heaven works. First the house, then the inhabitants. Doesn't that make sense? If you are going to have an inhabitant in a house, what should you have first? The house. And what do you think God wants to do first in us? He wants to build the house correctly and then move in as the inhabitant. First the wineskin, then the wine. It's a little awkward when you don't have the wineskin. You have wine dumping out, but you don't have any proper ability to catch it, to hold it, to savor it. And even if we remember what Jesus said, an old wineskin would burst with new wine. So therefore, he must make you a new wineskin before the new wine comes. Doesn't it make sense? If he's going to pour out new wine, what needs to happen first? You need to become a new wineskin so that you can hold the new wine. How about first the channel, then the river? If God has an intention of putting a river of life in and through you, that means he wants to hollow out a channel with which to go in. First the channel, then the river. Otherwise, we just have a flood that goes any which way. First the hearth. Then the fire, if we bring the fire before the hearth, what happens? The whole house burns down. It says that God is a consuming fire. We better have a hearth. We better know how God intends to dwell within us. Do we know what we're asking for? We're asking for the mighty floodwaters of grace. We're asking for the consuming fire of Almighty God. Are we ready for it? In a sense, God is already answering that question for us. If you were ready, church, you would have it. You know what? We're asking. It's not for lack of asking. It's for lack of being made ready. And I don't see anything wrong with being made ready. I appreciate the process that God has been doing in us as a church to prepare us for what he has in store.
built the building of the sacred house. First the hewn stone, next the cedar, then the gold, then the cloud of glory. You know what there was a proper way? First you start with the hewn stone. That's what I read at the very beginning. The hewn stone was first laid in as a foundation. Then on top of that, it was cedar, cedar beams. Everything was cedar. However, that cedar was then plated with gold on the floor, on the walls, on the ceiling. The whole thing was plated with gold. So you didn't even see the cedar. You didn't see the stone. All you saw was the gold. And then what? Well, there was still something needed. What's the good of God's house without God? And guess who moved in? God moved in. God moved into a house in the Old Testament. This really happened. He came in the cloud of glory and literally dwelt within a 20 cubit by 20 cubit box. Why would he do that? It was a foreshadow. It was a foreshadow of him coming and dwelling within us. And we are known as the temple of God. It says, and it came to pass when the priests were come out of the holy place. They just brought in the Ark of Covenant into the holy place. It set it down, probably closed the curtain. And it came to pass when the priests were come out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord. So that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord had filled the house of the Lord. Well, I don't know what it takes in our midst for us to be made ready for that house. That house took, what was it, seven years to build? In other words, this wasn't a small job. This was a huge job. And the level of detail that went into the construction of this house was massive. And what do we want? We want the same benefits. We want the same cloud of glory, but without the diligence in the small things. The carvings on the wall were to intricate detail. Are we willing to allow God to bring in the details of his mighty workmanship into our soul in the small areas? Oh, listen to this line. I love this. This is Solomon speaking. What Will God indeed dwell on, on the earth? That's like profound. Would God, the high God of heaven, dwell indeed on this earth? Behold, the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. How much less this house that I have builded. How much less us can contain the almightiness of God. First things first. The infrastructure for revival. Are we ready? I was mentioning this to the interns this week and also I think to the basic students. In the first day at Pentecost, there was 3,000 that came into the church. Most likely it was like a week later or so that 5,000 more came into the church. That's 8,000 in what could have been a week. And that was just the men, by the way. Who knows how many there actually were. Are we prepared as a church to handle 8,000? Suddenly rushing in because of a move, mighty movement of grace in this generation. We have 8,000 people standing outside those doors. I gave the students the illustration that, say all of us moved into the lake house. What, that leaves room for uh, now, now we have 7,850 outside the door? Are we prepared to disciple and to lead that mob from death unto life? Do we know the gospel? Do we know how to wield it? Do we know how to be master builders? Has the Spirit of God taught us? Have, have we been proven yet? Are we ready? Well, the fact that there's not a mob out there probably is our answer. We as the church are not yet ready for what we want to have happen in this generation. 
We want the big stuff to happen, but we don't want to tend to the little stuff to ensure that when the big stuff happens, the big stuff happens right. You know, one of the enemy's number one agendas is to sabotage a movement of grace. And the way he does that is he plays upon the flesh in any gathering. But if the flesh is dead in a a gathering like this and only the spirit is allowed to move, it has, the enemy has no place in a time of mighty revival. You see, our generation doesn't care about the church anymore. They're nonchalant towards it. They think we're a joke. They look out at the church and they mock, they snicker. We're powerless. We don't have anything to cause them to tremble. However, the church of Jesus Christ, the way it's always been throughout history, when the church is healthy, the nations tremble. Oh, no. The church of Jesus Christ has once again reawakened. They are walking in the ancient power of the cross. When that happens, nations turn on their head. It happens. 8,000 come into the church in one week. And what if that's happening in every community across the land? Well, are we ready? That's the question. The infrastructure for revival. Do we have the foundation stones in place? Imagine that we had a whole bunch of people that needed housing tonight. Do we have the houses set up? That's the same way it is at the church. Are we ready to be hospitable for 8,000? Are we ready to be hospitable for 80,000? Are we ready to be hospitable to 800,000? What are we praying for? Don't we recognize that God will change nations? You know, there's a lot more than 800,000 people in this nation that God may very well want to awaken. Are we ready as the church, not just this one, but the church at large to handle that? Most of us would think, boy, if they went to the church out there, they're not going to be discipled. Exactly. We have a problem. We are not yet ready for the very thing we're asking for. But are we willing to be made ready? Here. This is a microcosm of what God is doing. The infrastructure for the underground church. Are we ready? Say all turns dark and quickly. We as Americans are not prepared for anything. Let alone 8,000 outside of our doors. Who's ready to keep the church going? Who's ready to die and suffer to make sure that the integrity of the gospel is maintained even in the darkest hours when it's illegal to hold church gatherings? Is the church in America ready? What do you think the Spirit of God would be doing right now? He'd be preparing us to be ready. In other words, if we're not tending to the small things, we're going to miss the big things. When these things happen, the church that has been groomed and built by the Spirit of God walks in stride with it and rejoices. I don't know that we're exactly there. The infrastructure for a working, world-altering church. Are we ready? You know the type of church that actually has missionaries going into all the world? By the droves. In fact, everyone on earth either is being changed by Christianity or is wanting to kill Christians. One or the other. There's no middle ground. You have to make a decision on the matter. Because the church, once again, has power. And nothing can stop it. It's the juggernaut. It's the unstoppable freight train. No matter what the enemy puts up, it's mowed down in the church of Jesus Christ. Truth reigns once again in this world. Knees are bowing and tongues are confessing that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do we even think that something like this could happen again? What God do we serve? Are we ready to be vessels fit? to carry such a work in this generation. 
Well, if we are, we need to be built by the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God wants to deal with first things first. He wants to deal with our foundation. We're ready to stick a chimney on. And God says, boy, boy, we still need some hewn stones in that foundation. I have some costly jewels I want to get into that foundation of yours. I'm like, foundation? I'm ready to do more, God. And I appreciate that. But unless I get a good foundation, you're not going to be able to do more. I need to build you the way only I can build you. What we need is dunamis. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard this word before, but you see a word that's similar? Dynamite. This is the word for power in the New Testament. It's where the word dynamite even comes from. What the Spirit of God brings is dunamis. Here's our word, dunamus. The strength, the ability, the power of a mighty host, a great army, that power to perform mighty feats, the strength to do impossible things, the ability to carry out heavenly tasks and work moral miracles. Sign me up. You know that I've noticed as a leader, I don't have natural dunamis. I can't just in my own willpower do these things. I can esteem them all day long. However, there is one that can bring dunamis to the church. It's known as the Holy Spirit. Where does he get it from? He gets it from the cross. He gets it from Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ delights to share what he has, which he has received from the Father. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father and it says all things are under his feet. He's been given all power and all authority. All dunamis has been given to Jesus. And what does the Spirit do? He brings us all power. And he brings us to the saints so that the church can begin to function as the church ought to function. We're not just a whole bunch of men and women who think right doctrinal thoughts. We are men and women who live supernatural lives. There is no explanation for our lives outside of the dunamis and the love of God. It's impossible to explain it. We are supernatural in our makeup. We do not behave as men do. We behave as Christ behaved. Not because of us, but because of God in us. We are clothed in Christ's righteousness, brought into the throne room of grace, and the, the treasure chest of grace is open to us. And in that treasure chest of grace is the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promise of life. And that very life is imparted to us and... Suddenly, that which was everyday and mediocre and could completely be overlooked, just like that burning... Remember the, the bush back in Moses' day that was lit aflame with fire? Well, do you think anyone stopped at that bush up to that point and said, oh, what a nice bush? But then suddenly, God got into that bush. And it caused Moses to remove his shoes and kneel down, for he was on holy ground. And when this world encounters our life, they encounter an everyday bush that is filled with the fire of God. Dunamis. But you shall receive dunamis. After that, the Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit, if that helps, is come upon you. And you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Who said that? Jesus said that. Who did he say it to? His disciples. Paul literally says, that which you've seen in me and heard from me, do. The very thing that Paul carried, which was the dunamis of God, we literally are required to walk in the same grace 
that Paul walked in. This is for us, not just the early disciples. And I would love for anyone to attempt to argue why the church is going to be more effective in our day without the power of God. People say, well, we have the 66 books of Scripture. I would also like to have the God who wrote those Scriptures living in me, making them a living epistle for this world to behold. I don't want text only. I want the God that animates that text in me. That's the Holy Spirit. And without it, we can't function. And without it, the world will remain dead as it is. And without it, the church will be powerless. But with it, the world will be changed, starting with us as individuals. What is the Holy Spirit building? What's his end game? What's he up to? He's planting the divine nature within. You know what the divine nature is? It's the very nature of God. <laughs> he sticks it in us. Could you imagine actually having a different nature than what you have now? You know your nature, which is all self-oriented? It's arrogant and it's proud. You think you're something special and here you are just a diddly squat nothing? And suddenly the God of the universe enters into you and begins to love it in through you. It's all about the value of the glory of God and the value of others. He changes your disposition. Suddenly, things that are pure are attractive to you. And things that are dirty and, and worldly, you actually hate. He changes you. The Spirit of God does that. He's conforming us into the image of Jesus. The Imago Dei. The image. If, if you were to sculpt a statue, that would be the image of the one that you sculpted. We are meant to literally be a picture of the creator in and through our lives. When people say it, they go, that is just like the real thing. Yeah, because the real thing dwells within us. And so the behavior of our life actually shows the image of God. And he's revealing the manifold wisdom of God into all the heavenly realms in and through our lives. And so the heavenly realms are going to see the manifold wisdom of God. How? In and through us. The church. That's God's means. He wants to take the weak things of this world, us, and he wants to make a declaration to the heavenlies. He wants us to be his voice box. Doesn't that seem like a bad idea? God, why don't you just come down in your cloud of glory and speak? Why do you use us? The Spirit of God needs a body. The Spirit of God came to this earth in the person of Jesus Christ and lived spoke, took of what is Jesus's and now brings it to us. And we are now the body of Christ to function with the same power, the same dunamis, the same love that Jesus did. Jesus was God and that's why he did it perfectly. And we're a very funny thing to fill, I have to admit. Why would God choose us? I understand why Jesus, why us? This is God's way. He has condescended and he has chosen us, his people. And he says, I want to construct you. Will you allow me to be the master builder and build you into a picture of Jesus so that this world will behold who I am? Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. But we all, with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image 
from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Who's changing us into that image? The Spirit of the Lord. Ephesians 3, and this is our last scripture. Whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God, given unto me by the effectual working of his power, his dunamis. Unto me, who am less than the least of all the saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent that now under the principalities and powers and heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. God is going to make a name for himself. And in the end, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Right now, we are not a pure and spotless bride. But the Spirit of God is ready to work in the body of Christ again, afresh and anew. And he's willing to lay a foundation upon which truly the temple of God, the very dwelling place of God, can be established. That we literally could be bearers of the dunamis, the power of the great mighty host of heaven inside of us. And we could be flow through channels for his mighty river of love. So that anyone that comes in contact, us, contact with us would say, I've seen God. I've heard God. And they say, How? And that Christian over there, that Christian is carrying God Almighty. That Christian has something that this world doesn't. And may it be true of us. We are in the process of a three-day fasting and 24-hour around-the-clock prayer for an increase of the Spirit of God upon us. And I think this is very, very important in the midst of that. That we allow God to tend to the small things in our soul so that God can increase upon us. We may only have one mina, but if all of us together say, let's take that mina and let's invest it in the kingdom. Let's give it to God. Let's obey him. Let's do what he's asking of us. If there's something in your life that you know the grace of God needs to be applied towards and you're sitting on it going, I don't know. I mean, no one else seems to be convicted of that. It doesn't make any difference. If God is convicting you, whether it's your attitude, whether it's the slowness with how you repel temptation. In other words, you repel it, but it's slow. And God says, razor sharp, quick. Apply grace in that precise area. Okay? Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please, feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.